Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. episode, I was really delighted to be able to talk to my mum and have a conversation about the women at war during the Bush War in the 1970s and their role in the whole episode. It was quite interesting because although it must have been an incredibly exciting time, the thing that really comes through, I think, is that at the end of the day, war is a terrible thing and People were absolutely exhausted by the end of it. Anyway, it goes without saying that this episode I should discuss my chapter Behind Every Great Man. So here we go. The Rhodesian Bush War crept up on us. It seemed that one moment we were living in a kind of utopia, and the next we were at war. At least for those of us on farms. For many of the city dwellers, it hardly seemed to have started at all. In fact, at times they went about their daily lives unaware of the stress that was being heaped upon us out in the bush. There were times when I felt that even my gran was quite oblivious to it all. It drove my mum crazy. On the 21st of December, 1972, a group of 10 Zanla guerrillas attacked the farmstead of the de Borgrave family in Centenary. Adrian de Borgrave was my age and had boarded at Mbukwe's junior school with me. So naturally, we were all shocked to hear that the gang had shot up the farm with AK-47s and even thrown grenades through the windows. Fortunately, nobody had been killed. But for us farming folks... The war had officially begun. The advent of war intruded into a white rural community that was two or three generations old. Many of these folk had ancestors stretching back to the time when Lobangula ruled the Matabili. Exiles or adventurers of empire, they had arrived after circuitous and colorful family histories and now felt as entitled as anyone to live there, and were prepared to die for what they saw as their homeland under attack. And in this, as in previous generations, women were to the fore. But more about that later. The majority of farm laborers were also immigrants from Malawi, Mozambique, and beyond. They too would find themselves caught up in the politics of war. African stores are always a hive of activity, music, and gossip. The Kelston Ranch store on the Harrington's farm next door to us was no different. Everything was hanging from the roof or bulging off the shelves. The single-roomed building was redolent of the sweet, musty smell of green soap, fresh bread, and boiled sweets and always the pungent stench of rat droppings. 
The storekeeper, often a highly respected person in the neighborhood who doubled as the schoolteacher for the local farm kids, could often be seen chatting amiably and wrapping the purchases in brown paper. Sacks of mealy meal, Vicks Vapo Rub, Nivea Surf, Lion Matches, long bars of carbolic soap, Coke Fanta Sparletta grape drink, batteries, candles, ink, cooking oil, even the odd bicycle suspended from the rafters. And the tailor in the corner, constantly clacking and whirring away on his manual singer with his swatches of brightly coloured textiles, from eye-popping printed polyesters and crimplines to navy blue wools and cool white cottons. Triple fives and Madison and Kingsgate cigarettes sold either by the box or singly, jars full of suckers, gobstoppers, lollipops, adorned the countertop. Noisy loiterers sat about the veranda, chatting and smoking, occasionally shooing away chickens and the odd goat. Outside the store grew an old mango tree, depleted of fruit, but always offering its shade to several people whiling away the time. This was the ideal place for talk, and talk they did. The Africans from the Victory Block probably knew more about what was happening in the distant corners of the land than any of us whites ever did. Bush Telegraph, call it what you will, chatter in the compound and at the stores was the lifeline of these folk. The morning of 22nd of December 1972 would have been no different to any other were it not for the constant comings and goings of men and women in the Kelston store discussing the attack from the night before. News travelled fast out in the bush. How they knew was anyone's guess. Pictures of Adrian's bullet-riddled bedroom were plastered in the Rhodesia Herald, but that wouldn't be delivered until the next day. The headline photo showed bullet holes running in an arc across Adrian's whitewashed walls. The rural population had good reason to be alarmed. No good ever came of this sort of thing, particularly for the peasant farmers. The atrocities by the Kenyan Mau Mau were still etched in the minds of the white folk too. Farmhouses were barely protected, with many homes built to withstand hot weather rather than grenade attacks. Our own house was one such dwelling, with every room opening up onto the wide veranda. I expect our farm workers were even more worried than us, and would have felt even less protected. Farms were remote and communications awful back then. The best we could do for security was a couple of dogs that would sooner drown the intruder with slobber and drool than attack them. All adult white men had to do call-up duty or police reserve. This was later known as PAR-2, the Police Anti-Terrorist Unit. It was essentially a dad's army, largely made up of farmers who knew how to wield a weapon. Now, don't get me wrong. 
Dad's army, not in the old English sense, these were men who rarely did know how to shoot a weapon. Initially, Patu took the men away from their work only a few days a year, but as the war escalated, they were gone for weeks at a time, patrolling in dense bush and often making contact with guerrillas far fitter and better armed than they, although arguably with less training or discipline. Well, that's what we were led to believe anyway. It was tough on the men and tougher on the women who were left to defend their homes and children alone. Yet many women believed it did wonders for their marriages. Honestly, Libby, I love having the old bugger out of the house, some housewife would say. One wonders what they got up to when the cats were away. For many women, the war was a rallying cry. Their ancestors had lived through the Matabele Rebellion of 1893 and, for many of them, the Mashona Rebellion of 1896. And it was the women, including my great-grandmother, Bella K. Burnett, who kept the home fires burning. Known as the first Chimarenga, King Lobengula's 80,000 spearmen and 20,000 riflemen began attacking settlers and farmers. The pioneering women were often left alone and formed protective groups to defend themselves against marauding Matabele and Mashona. My great-grandfather, Tom Burnett, was, well, like many pioneers, the third son of a wealthy landed family in Scotland. Hailing from Crathy's Castle near Dundee, he was the third in line and was sent out into the world to earn his living. The empire was at its height, and he was spoiled for choice. I don't suppose this was particularly unusual, as most third sons became preachers, missionaries, or pioneers. Cecil John Rhodes and the British South Africa Company sought eager applicants from wealthy families. Children from rich families were more likely to get help from the British government in case of attack from savages. For the 180 men, and indeed there were only 180 in the beginning, who joined up, including Tom, it was a journey into the unknown. But it accomplished its mission, and they hoisted the Union Jack on the site of present-day Harare on the 13th of September, 1890. Tom married Bella K. Stewart, a successful opera singer from Dundee, and distant relation of Mary, Queen of Scots, so we're led to believe. I suppose all Stuarts are, rarely, but I think this time it was true. Leaving his young bride in Scotland, Tom ventured forth with Rhodes and his pioneers to help open up the southern African hinterland that would later become southern Rhodesia. 
Bella Kay joined him, I don't know, possibly towards the beginning of the 1890s, alighting from a boat in Cape Town and straight onto a dusty, hot train up to Kimberley. Bella Kay then trekked north behind a mule to join her husband. They lived in a pole and dagger hut in Fort Bulawayo. One can hardly imagine the complete change of lifestyle for a woman of Bellicay's standing, who was a protege of the famous Australian soprano, Dame Nellie Melba. It's said that Nellie Melba hoped Bellicay would succeed her. She never really did settle down this one. It's not too surprising. But like a white Russian in exile, not exactly surrounded by her tasteful paintings and tapestries and libraries from home, these would come many months later, moth-eaten and ruined beyond repair. But at least Bella Kay had her beloved two pianos, her scores and her music, and several crates of gowns by Worth and Paris totally unsuitable for the Rhodesian bush. Together with all her fur coats and stoles, feathered Victorian hats and buttoned kid gloves scattered with droppings of mice and sometimes the odd black mamba, these pioneer wives must have cut a rather ridiculous figure to the near-naked Bantu and Matabili. King Lobengula's kraal was but spitting distance from their home. It was a far cry from the footlights of Covent Garden or her school in Edinburgh, which had demanded the highest of standards, deportment and discipline. But they were brave and resilient, these extraordinary women, arranging roses in a wattle and daub hut one moment, and the next helping defend their homesteads against attack. Bella Kay always maintained it was Rhodes's funeral that finally killed her husband. You see, Tom was a pallbearer and had to traipse up the Matopos hills carrying Rhodes's coffin. No mean feat considering Rhodes's coffin was massive, consisting as it did of three separate coffins. There was an outer shell of Matabili teak which enclosed two inner coffins each made of metal. Attached to the sides of the outer coffin were eight huge handles of beaten brass bearing Rhodes's monogram. These were cast, beaten, finished, and delivered for fixing within four days of the order being given. A team of artisans having worked night and day to complete the job. The coffin was then transported by ox-drawn wagon to Rhodes's final resting place at Malindidzimu, gosh, I hope I've said that right, in the Matopos Hills. A special road of more than 15 miles had been carved through the rocky terrain over the preceding days by a thousand strong team of Matabili. Bella Kay watched as the Matabili nation saluted Rhodes's coffin. Bayete! The royal salute given by an impi 
of Matabele warriors as he was finally lowered into his granite grave. It was the first and only time this tribal blessing was given to a white man. Having survived two rebellions, Bella Kay lived to the ripe old age of 91. Known affectionately as the Rhodesian Nightingale, she openly loathed her adopted country to the day she died. Only once did she go back to her beloved Dundee, where the mayor hung bunting across the street with the words, Welcome back, Bella Kay Stewart. Her married name, Burnett, seemed to have conveniently been omitted from her life, very much like her husband. Perhaps I paint a rather rose-tinted picture of dear Bella Kay. Despite the done thing, I am reliably informed that she was a frightful bitch and one day just decided to leave her poor husband in a nursing home in Bulawayo and head for the hills of Mashonaland, but not before having had a rather public affair with Jock, the father of the future Rhodesian Prime Minister, Ian Douglas Smith. Old Man Smith would often go up to Bulawayo to listen to Bella Kay's singing, although most people in the know believed it certainly wasn't the voice he was after. Tom Burnett's health deteriorated quickly after that, not helped, of course, by lugging that coffin up, and here we go again, Malindid Zimu Hill. But to his credit, when he was finally laid to rest, they took the original pioneer flag out of the Bulawayo Museum to drape across the coffin. Quickly returning it afterwards, of course, Bella Kay was quick to tell people, in a slightly catty manner. And so Bella Kay packed up her gowns, hats, gloves, loaded her two Steinway pianos onto a wagon with a team of 16 oxen, and together with her three children, my grandfather Gordon and his two sisters, Isabel and Jane, they set off on the long 400-mile trek to Fort Salisbury on the Moshonaland Plateau. Day after day, the span of oxen drew her convoy away from the low felt and the heat and the tetsy fly. The three young children would have taken note of the change of flora and fauna, the flat, dry plains of Matabili land, the thorn scrub, giant leafless boabab trees and delicate lime green mapani slowly making way for the colourful masasas and the monondos and the bloodwoods and the monkey breads. This was spring and the rains had come early that year. The masasa trees were displaying a riot of colour, almost lurid after the greyness of the low felt. Carmine, fuchsia, magenta and darker chestnuts. Even the granite copies seemed more vivid with streaks of rust and red lichens. The wide, shallow, crocodile-infested rivers gradually gave way to the balancing rocks of the Midlands and the downy hills of the Great Dyke. The huts on the side of the track 
were less robust than those of the Matabili and made of mud and elephant grass, sometimes with rust-colored patterns, totems, and animals painted crudely on the walls. I have a framed black and white photo, or rather a sepia photo, on my wall of some of these tough colonial Victorians at a picnic in the bush. The women are lying about on a blanket under the masasa trees, like Manet's déjeuner sale herbe, only with clothes on, broken bread, hard-boiled eggs and jars of pickles, and a bottle of what looks like port strategically placed around them. But what I love most about this photo is that clearly neither the photographer nor the subjects noticed a man a few yards behind them, out cold on a rock, a half-empty bottle of bourbon nearby. Here in the Midlands, rivers were stronger, deeper and more violent. The massive cumulus thunderclouds overhead were testament to the heavy rains this part of the world endured. After several weeks of bellowing cattle, cracking shambok, dust and mud, her trek drew up to the banks of the great Hanyani River, Bella Kay's last major hurdle before reaching, well, I say in inverted commas, civilization. The drift, normally used by the oxen, was now a quagmire of mud and raging, frothy, reddish-brown water. Branches and the occasional tree were swept past by the deluge. Teams of men drew the oxen and wagons slowly into the maelstrom, the 16 beasts bellowing in terror. And helpless, Bella Kay watched as her 990-pound Steinway was swept off the wagon by the current, floating majestically down the river and around the bend, never to be seen again. The ivory and ebony returned to the African bush from whence they came. I felt quite desolate and perfectly helpless, she told people later. That beautiful thing dashed upon the rapids downstream. It was inlaid with walnut, you know, and gold leaf lettering beneath the lid. Ah, oh, it was meant for life without dust and dry air, a life in some large, cool, clean Scottish home cut from the granite of Aberdeen. I never forgave the country after that. Bella Kay kept singing most of her life, giving lessons on her surviving piano to budding sopranos and mezzo-sopranos in the high notes of Rossini's Uno Voce Pocafa in Salisbury and often performing to stunned audiences of visiting dignitaries at the theatre or embassies or the newly built Meikle's Hotel. She was still alive when I was a toddler and I have a distant memory of an imposing woman, rather like Queen Mary, with a fur stole, large bosom, draped in strings of pearls. Perhaps that was just my theatrical side coming out. Of course, not everyone was enamoured with Bella Kay. After all, she was rather a harridan.
My mother's cousin, Mick Greer, once famously said, The only reason why I went to her funeral was to make sure the woman was dead. Although I am reliably informed, his language was slightly more colourful. Rest in peace, Bella Kay. If you enjoyed that episode about the pioneering women at war, why not tune in to my next episode, which is still about women at war, but this time, the 1970s Bush War. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.